Mark chapter 3, verse 7. Jesus withdrew with His disciples to the sea, and a great crowd followed from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Idumea and from beyond the Jordan and from around Tyre and Sidon. When the great crowd heard all that He was doing, they came to Him, and He told His disciples to have a boat ready for Him because of the crowd, lest they crush Him. For He had healed many, so that all who had diseases pressed around Him to touch Him. And whenever the unclean spirits saw Him, they fell down before Him and cried out, You are the Son of God. And He strictly ordered them not to make Him known. And He went up on the mountain and called to Him those whom He desired, and they came to Him. And He appointed twelve, whom He also named apostles, so that they might be with Him, and He might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. He appointed the twelve, Simon, to whom He gave the name Peter, James the son of Zebedee, and John the brother of James, to whom He gave the name Bonerges, that is, the sons of thunder. Andrew and Philip and Bartholomew and Matthew and Thomas and James the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus and Simon the Zealot and Judas Iscariot who betrayed him. Then he went home and the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him for they were saying, he's out of his mind. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, he's possessed by Beelzebub. By the prince of demons he casts out the demons. He called them to him and said to them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand but is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man. And whatever blasphemies they utter, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying, he has an unclean spirit. And his, brothers and, his, uh, and his mother and his brothers came. And standing outside, they sent to him and called him. And a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. Well, have you ever had a situation in your life where you felt uh, originally like you were an insider, like you fit in somewhere, but then after some time you realized you didn't fit in so well after all? I had that experience a couple years ago. Um, Joel actually asked me if I wanted some tickets to the Bandits game. Um, he had four tickets. I think uh, Caitlin's uh, father works for the Bandits or for, at Key Bank Center. So he had four tickets. And he said, they're box tickets. So I said, sure, I'd love to go. Uh, so me and Stephanie and my cousin and my cousin's son uh, went up to the Bandits game. Uh, and I had been to uh, some games before. I'd been to a, a couple of box seats before. Um, and if you're not familiar with what a box is, a box is uh, basically this area that's kind of enclosed from other people. There's probably 15 to 20 people that can fit in this area. Um, and usually there's uh, a company who rents it out and they sometimes provide different foods or, you know, whatever they provide. It's usually to kind of uh, butter up clients or whatnot. So I I'm excited to go to this game and we go up to uh, suite number seven and uh, walked in. And it turned out it was the Sabres suite, one of the best suites in the whole place. 
Um, and it was, it was just great. It had this beautiful buffet. And I'd, I, you know, like I said, I'd been to a couple of these uh, boxes before, and this was by far the best they had ever been to. And there was a host there, and, or hostess, and uh, she says, how did you get these tickets? And uh, I, I didn't know Caitlin's father's name, so I said, uh, well, a, a guy named uh, Dibble, his last name, Dibble gave it to us, and she looked at me and kind of with a blank stare, had no idea what I was talking about. So we go up and get some food, and then we go and find our seats, and we're just enjoying ourselves. And I'm about to go back and get a little bit more, and then I see that there's more and more people coming in. And there's so many people that there's not enough seats for the people that are coming in. I think, that's weird. Usually each person has a seat in these boxes. And then the hostess comes up to, to us and says, can I, can I see your tickets? I said, sure. I said, it says box seven on here. She said, this is suite seven. This isn't box seven. Box seven is downstairs. So we went downstairs, and there wasn't any food in, in the box downstairs. But we got a, got a bunch of free food on the way, so we were, we were fine with it. Little did we know we were breaking into the saver's box. And nobody caught us. We thought we were insiders, but we were outsiders. I think that's kind of the theme of this passage that we're looking at today. It's this theme of insider versus outsider. And the main idea of this passage is that in Jesus' kingdom, those who should be insiders are outsiders. And those who should be outsiders are insiders. In Jesus' kingdom, those who should be insiders are outsiders. And those who should be outsiders are insiders. So we see a couple different themes that kind of play, play along on this theme. So we see that people who have a past or people with a reputation are insiders, but the scribes or religious leaders are outsiders. Jesus goes up on a mountain and he's, the text says that he called to him those whom he desired. Now remember, this is different from the standard practice of rabbis. Usually, if a person wanted to follow or study under a rabbi, uh, he would go and pick out a rabbi that he wanted to and then ask permission to study under that rabbi. It would almost be like applying for a college. You know, students you know, pick a college that they want and then they apply uh, to go to that college. But Jesus is a different sort of rabbi. He simply chooses those that he wants to follow after him. And it says that in the text in verse 15 that he appointed, or literally it says that he made 12 disciples. He made 12 disciples. It's the same word that's used in the Greek translation of the Old Testament to describe God creating the heavens and the earth. Now, it's interesting that he would use this word created rather than appointed. And perhaps his point was not that, that Jesus didn't look out among many possible disciples and picked out the most qualified ones. He didn't pick out disciples. He chose people who were unworthy and he made them into disciples or apostles. The number 12 is significant because it's the same number as the 12 tribes of Israel. And Jesus' intention was likely to show that Israel will now fulfill its divinely ordained mission in relationship to himself. And these people whom Jesus chose were chose, chosen to do three things. They were to be with him. That is, they were to learn from him, to be his disciples. They were to preach and they were to have authority over uh, the evil spirits. This was a special calling that was given to these people, these 12 dis disciples who uh, were called apostles or sent out ones. 
And they were given these special responsibilities and this special authority. But look at the people that Jesus chose. I mean, we've kind of gotten bits and pieces of some of the people that Jesus chose. But remember Simon Peter, his struggles with faith are pretty well known. He ended up denying the Lord three times, prone to speak and act before thinking. Matthew is a tax collector, probably the same person as Levi, one of the most despised professions of Judaism, considered to be traitors by their own people. Brothers James and John are referred to as the sons of thunder, or it also could be translated as loud ones, perhaps for their, because of their propensity to get agitated or to be contentious very easily. We see this in uh, Luke chapter 9, verse 53. But the people did not receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem. And when his disciples, James and John, saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? But he turned and rebuked them. They were the sons of thunder. They were contentious. They were easily agitated. We see a different Simon rather than Simon Peter. The different Simon is referred to as the zealot. The zealots were Jewish revolutionaries who wanted to fight against Rome and overthrow the Roman authorities. So he either was or is at the time of Jesus' calling a revolutionary. And these people are Jesus' inner circle. His cabinet, so to speak. The people that he invests with the most power, the most authority, the people that he invests in the most. And there's something else that's interesting to note about these people. Now we learn a lot more in the Scriptures about some of the apostles. Peter, James, John. Very popular figures in the early church and we see uh, what some, of the, some of what they did in the book of Acts. But then there's other apostles that we don't really know much about at all. For example, Bartholomew, Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, and Simon the Zealot. We don't see them any other time after this calling that Jesus has on their life. Yet we know that they were successful and that they proclaimed the message that God called them to because here we are thousands of years later proclaiming the same message. James Edwards, a scholar, writes this. Their names, however, like the even longer list of names in Romans 16, to 16 stand as silent witnesses to the truth that the existence of the church is indebted to the labors of those who for the most part remain unknown and unnamed. So these are the ultimate insiders. The people that God chose to invest time, uh, quality time with. That He chose to walk with, to do life with people who were tax collectors, people who had a past, a reputation. But he invests in those people, and those people are insiders. So the people who are, should be outsiders are insiders, and the people who should be insiders are outsiders. The scribes, the religious leaders, they should be in, insiders, but they find themselves as outsiders. And this is, I think, one of the most interesting and perplexing passages in all of Scripture. Because Jesus does all these miracles. He's healing people. He's casting out spirits. He's doing all these miraculous things. You know, and we think about the life of Jesus, and sometimes maybe if we've struggled with doubt, we've thought to ourselves, if only I could see Jesus do these things. If only if I could see the nail marks in His hands. If only I could see Him raise somebody from the dead. If only I could see Him heal somebody who was born blind. If only I could see these things... And then I would believe. 
But these people, these scribes, they see it all. They see Jesus' works. They see the miracles. They see Him casting out demons. And yet they still refuse to believe. They say, by the power of Beelzebub, He cast out the demons. Satan is casting out Satan, they say. And Jesus responds and says, how can Satan cast out Satan? In other words, why would Satan be fighting against himself? If Satan's kingdom is divided, then his kingdom is going to fall. A house divided against itself cannot stand. And then he says, no one can enter into the house of a strong man unless he binds the strong man. In essence, Jesus is saying that he is bound the strong man. He is bound Satan. And now he is going around the countryside freeing people of the oppression that they were under. Proclaiming liberty to the captives. And so he says, if Satan, why would Satan be casting out Satan? The scribes will not believe it. They see it all, but they refuse to believe. And we see that pattern throughout Scripture and in other places also, that seeing is not necessarily believing. You can see it, but that doesn't mean you have to believe it. Then Jesus goes on to make a startling, even frightening statement. He says, Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man, and whatever blasphemies they utter, for whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying, he has an unclean spirit. He says, any sin that a person commits, any blasphemy he commits, I can forgive that. A person comes to me and asks for forgiveness. I forgive it. I'll forgive him. But there's one sin that is so great that it's unforgivable. So great that there is no forgiveness for it. So what is blasphemy against the Holy Spirit? According to this text, it's ascribing to the devil the work of the Holy Spirit. It's what they're doing here. Jesus is doing miraculous things. Healing people and then they say, He's not the Son of God. He's the devil. He's doing this by the power of the devil. Now if Jesus shows Himself to these people, He shows them all these mighty works, and yet still after all these proofs to them of who He is, they say to Him, He's the devil. What hope is there for them? James Edwards says this, anyone who willingly or not cannot distinguish evil from good and good from evil, darkness from light, and light from darkness is beyond the pale of repentance. When a person blasphemes the Holy Spirit, he closes himself off from the work of God. And when you close yourself off from the work of God, we believe that the Holy Spirit is the one that must empower us. When we say to the Holy Spirit, no, you're of the devil, then there's no hope for us. How can the Holy Spirit empower us and give us life and make us become born again if we say no, the Holy Spirit's of the devil? Now, when I was a kid, I remember reading this passage and being terrified and uh, thinking to myself, oh, I might have already committed that unforgivable sin. And uh, if I haven't committed it already, I might commit it in the future and then I'd be hopelessly lost. You know, and I thought to myself, what if I committed accidentally? Well, that's not the point of this passage. If you're worried about whether you committed this unforgivable sin, that's a very good indication that you haven't committed it. These people are not coming to Jesus asking for forgiveness. They'll never come to Jesus asking for forgiveness. 
They'll never repent. They're just saying, he's of the devil. He's of the devil. He's of the devil. And we know that there's no record in Scripture of anyone actually coming to Jesus and Him turning them away. Anyone coming to God asking for forgiveness who He doesn't forgive. So these people, they're not going to repent. They're not going to come to the Lord. So the point is not that if you commit this sin, then you could never be saved, that you could never come to the Lord. The point is that, you, that certain that people can get to a point where they'll never repent, where they're confirmed in their hardness of heart. But anyone who does repent, anyone who does turn to the Lord, He will forgive and make new. So these scribes have no for, desire for forgiveness. They just want Jesus dead. But these are the people who should be insiders. They know all the Scriptures. They know them better than probably any of us in this room. And yet they say, Jesus, He's of the devil. Those who should be insiders are outsiders. Those who should be outsiders are insiders. Sometimes people who are not believers uh, said things like, I could never come to church because if I entered into the church, the walls of the church would fall down. In other words, saying I'm so wicked or I've done so many different wrong things that if I came into the church, the church couldn't contain it, so to speak. It would like spit me out almost. I remember there was when the church first opened, uh, there was a food pantry downstairs. And there was a gentleman who came to the food pantry. And uh, he was okay coming downstairs. He would go into the lounge. But he refused to come into the sanctuary even if there wasn't a service. He wouldn't come into the sanctuary. It was this idea that somehow they were unworthy to come even into the doors of the church. But the unworthy, those who are broken, those who realize that they don't have it all together, those are the people who are insiders. The people who think they have it all together, the people who think that their religious works will somehow garner them favor with God, those are the ones who are outsiders. People who have all the knowledge but haven't put their faith and trust in Christ. So we see first that the people with a reputation, the sinners, the broken, those are the people who are insiders, the people that God uses. The scribes who reject God, those are the outsiders. We see a second group in this passage, a second group of people. We see that the humble are insiders, but those who know Jesus the best are outsiders. The humble are insiders, but the people who know Jesus the best are outsiders. The text indicates that Jesus has gone home. We don't know exactly whose home it was, but he goes into a home, and there was a crowd that was gathering around him, and that uh, so many people were coming to him that he wasn't even able to eat. Uh, probably just keep, he was just kept doing ministry and just couldn't even catch his breath because there were so many people coming with so great needs. But then his family hears about it. Those who are close to Jesus were probably most likely his family. And they come and they try to seize him, to take hold of him. And they say, he's out of his mind. Now, why would they do this? It was probably out of concern for him. Uh, part, part of it was probably that uh, Jesus hadn't eaten, and they thought to themselves, well, he's got to rest. He's, he's going to be famished. He's going to faint in the desert. He's got to eat. So part of it might have been that. But there was also another part of it. 
Jesus is going around doing all these miraculous works and making claims about Himself. And the religious leaders are getting more and more angry. In the passage uh, just preceding this, the, scri- or the religious leaders were making plans to kill Jesus. And so Jesus' family goes out to Him, tries to take Him in. They say, come into the house. Come away from these people. And they say, no, He doesn't know what He's talking about. He's out of His mind. He's a lunatic. Come on, Jesus. Come on in. Let's, let's not cause a stir. Let's not get yourself into trouble. Come in and we'll take care of you. I mean, in a sense, they were looking out for His best interests, but they weren't looking out for God's interests. They were looking out for Jesus' interests, but they weren't looking out for God's interests. We need to be careful of of that. As believers in Jesus, there's some people in our life that might care about us a lot, but don't care about God's plan for us. And Jesus responds and He says, after they say your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you, He says, who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around Him, He said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. It almost seems like Jesus is being a jerk here. His family comes to him in essence is trying to help him and he seems to ignore them. But Jesus is redefining here what it means to be an insider, what it means to be an outsider. His family are outsiders. They don't believe. They're not concerned with the will of God. They're only concerned about Jesus and His safety. His family is seeking to stop Him from doing God's will. From fulfilling God's plan for His life. But the crowd He refers to as His brother, His mother. At least individual members of the crowd. Now we don't know exactly what the crowd was like, but I imagine Jesus being in the center and then says around Him were people. And you can just imagine Jesus being in the center and then people around Him just watching Him, listening to Him intently. They were people who believed. They cared about the will of God. They wanted to know the will of God. In this day and age, family and lineage ran very deep, very important. But Jesus, in His action here, shows us two different things. He tells, shows us first that one cannot increase his or her standing with God because of his or her genetics. Or even because of his or her religious background. Even the people who are closest to Jesus, the people who had seen Him grow up, who had been able to probably observe the most about His life and ministry, even those people need to make a decision. Even those people need to decide if they're going to believe in Jesus. In Matthew chapter 3, verse 9, Jesus is talking to the Pharisees and He says, And do not presume, presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. So the Pharisees in the same way were like this and they you know, might have thought to themselves, Well, I'm a Jew. I have Abraham as my father and so therefore I'm going to enter into the kingdom of God. But Jesus says it's not about your family heritage. It's not about your earthly religious background. Each person needs to make their own decision. And for us today, you can't be in the family of God because your parents are Christians. You can't be in the family of God because your spouse is a Christian. You can't be in the family of God 
Because your friends are Christian, each person has to choose what they're going to do with Jesus. They're going to believe Him. Humbly seek to do His will. They're going to trust Him with your life. So first, Jesus tells us one cannot increase his or her standing with God because of his or her genetics or religious background. And second, in this action, He tells us the priority of our relationship with God over any other relationship. Now, Jesus says in Luke 14.26 that if we come to Him, we need to hate our family. That if We need to hate our family if we come to Jesus. Now, does that mean that we seek harm for our family? That we treat our family poorly? That's not what Jesus is talking about. Now, even though Jesus, in a sense, it seems like He's rejecting His family here, He cares deeply about His family. And we see even at the point of the cross, He's concerned that His mother be taken care of. So He's not rejecting His family. He's just establishing who is an insider, who gets in and who doesn't. But He shows us the priority that our relationship with God must have over any other relationship. Those of us who have family members who are not believers, and that's probably most of us, you can probably relate to what Jesus is saying here. We usually have some family resemblances to our family of origin. You know, maybe we look like our family members. Uh, maybe there's certain ways that we communicate in a similar way to our, our family members. Uh, maybe we have common interests. Uh, maybe even, even if we don't have a relationship with our family, even if we try to be you know, completely opposite of our family member. We still have some kind of family resemblance to our family members. But we could have a family, a good relationship with our family. You know, we could get along well. We could have common interests. But if our family isn't in the family of God, if they're not believers, it's almost like there's a wall that's built between us and them. I mean, we love them. We care for them. We would do anything for them. But there's a wall there. We can't have the relationship, the depth of intimacy that we could have with someone who is a believer. That you, maybe even if you grew up with someone, if you know everything about them, you spent your whole life with them, you can't have that relationship with them that you might even have with a stranger who knows the Lord. Because there's a common bond that you have in serving the Lord. And so Jesus' family at this point find themselves as outsiders. And Jesus says, here, these people around me, they're the people who get it. They're trying to do the will of, the, of God. They're the ones who believe in me. They're the ones who are supporting my mission. My family of origin, family I grew up with, they're trying to stop me from doing God's will for my life. So again, we see that those who are insider, or who should be insiders are outsiders, and those who should be outsiders are insiders. A few years ago, March 16, 2014, um, Virginia College sophomore decided that he really, really wanted to be a part uh, of his school's basketball team. They were playing a championship game against Duke, um, and he wasn't a apparently a very good basketball player, so he thought of another ingenious idea how he could be on the team. He observed the uniform that the coaches would wear, 
And so he went to Walmart and he got a suit jacket, suit pants, dress shoes, dress socks, white dress shirt, and then the orange tie that the assistant coaches would often wear. And then he bought a $30 ticket up way in the nosebleeds for the game. Then during a TV timeout, he came down the aisle, walked right past a security guard or some attendant, walked right on the court confidently, and then he stood there on the sidelines with the team. After the game, uh, Virginia actually won the game, and he was taking part in the celebration festivities. He went through and shook hands with the rest of the other team. He even got to shake hands with a legendary uh, coach, Coach K. There was even pictures of him with a championship t-shirt on over his suit jacket. But then finally, a Virginia uh, tech attendant, a Virginia attendant spotted him, and uh, he ran away in a crowd up the railings and, and got away. That's an interesting way to try to be on the team. You just try to wear the uniform, but not really being a part of the team. And the question I have for us today is, are we a part of the team? Are we a part of the family of God, or do we just kind of wear the uniform, wear the clothing? The outsiders are the ones who think they have it all together. They have the right clothing. They do the right outer activities. They go to church. They give to the poor. Maybe even do some spiritual disciplines. But they're not insiders. They don't know Jesus. They don't believe in Jesus. They haven't entrusted their life to Jesus. But the people who have a past have a reputation. People who are broken people who are unqualified, they come to Jesus and find themselves as insiders. So the question is, have you trusted in Jesus today? Are you in, on the family of, in the family of God? And if you are a believer today, the second question to have us consider today is, when's the last time you thanked God that He's made you an insider? When's the last time you thanked Him for making you an insider. You know, I think about you know, people who say, I could never enter into the doors of a church. The guy who wouldn't enter into the sanctuary. And the truth is, I mean, there's some truth to that. None of us deserve to enter into the presence of God. None of us deserve to have a relationship with God. But God sent His Son Jesus to live a perfect life, to die on the cross for us, so that we could enter into the sanctuary so that we could become outsiders. So when's the last time you thanked Him for that? It's something that should change us every day. It's something that should transform the way that we think, the way that we behave, the way that we do life. So when's the last time that you thanked God for that? I'd like to close by reading 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 26-31. to It says, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards, Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of Him, you are in Christ Jesus, 
who became to us wisdom of God, righteousness and sanctification or redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Praise the Lord that He has made outsiders insiders. And now we can come into the presence of God. Let's pray. God, we thank You for Your love for us. We thank You that You came to the earth to rescue us, to redeem us from the dominion of darkness, to bring us into the kingdom of Your Son. That You came to the earth to bring us into Your family, to make us new, to give us a new hope, to give us a relationship with You. God, I thank You that You offered us forgiveness and hope even though we don't deserve it. Even though we should be outsiders, You've offered us a way to become an insider. God, I just pray that as we live our lives, we would consistently be transformed by that truth. That we would be changed by the good news of the Gospel. That it would spur us on to good works, to spur us on to love You more and more. And to be conformed more and more into Your image. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.